ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Anna McGann was playing a prostitute on Australia's biggest TV show when she found God. She renounced nudity on screen and traded her queerness for marriage. Anna did her best to be the perfect Christian woman, an obedient member of her church, a faithful wife and a good mother. But after a season of personal losses, Anna's understanding of faith shifted. She left her husband and her church, and although she was ostracised by her community, Anna never left God. As everything was falling apart, she turned to fiction and wrote a novel that explores holiness and healing. It's called Immaculate, and it's the winner of this year's Vogel Literary Award. Hi, Anna, and congratulations. Thank you so much, Sarah. What was it like getting the news that you'd won this big award? Oh, so surreal. It's hard to, I feel like often you hear these stories of, that people tell of like them genuinely being in the pits of despair when something life-changing happens. And I, I, I don't mean to be a cliche, but it did feel that way. I had been, you know, I'm pretty sure I was on the single mother's pension. I was applying for day jobs. I was, I had just um, submitted a different writing thing that had been, that had been rejected. And I was just sitting in this space of, why do I keep trying to tell stories? Am I just not cut out for that? I'm not, am I not supposed to do that? Why do I have this compulsion that makes me want to write? And I'd submitted the manuscript and genuinely thought nothing would come of it. And I got an email from Ellen and Unwin that said, you know, it was very cryptic and was just basically saying, can we please have a meeting? And I happened to be in Sydney and so I went into their offices and kind of was just pinching myself and going, you know what, if this is the only time you get to step inside like a publishing house, then like just soak this up. And um, a beautiful woman, Annette Barlow, who is one of the publishers there, she sat me down and she said, 30 years ago, I got to tell your uncle Andrew that he won this award and today I get to tell you. (laughs) And I was gobsmacked. And then, and then was told I had to keep it a secret for like a year. <laughs> I don't know if it's ever happened in Australian writing. So, so tell me a little bit about this Uncle Andrew. Was he a model for you in in deciding to become a writer? Yes, he was in in a way from a distance because I wasn't allowed to read his work for a very long time. He was just this kind of, and it wasn't as though he read my work as a child, of which there was, you know, it was very excitable. Um, it was simply that I observed someone choosing that as a job, choosing storytelling and writing books. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I want to do. And somebody there is doing it. So nobody can tell me that I can't. And and I guess writing books about subjects that mean their young nieces aren't meant to read them. Oh, it's so tempting in that way. And, like I realised very early he was a bit of a renegade. And I think something about that is very exciting when you're a child, but also kind of observing someone who doesn't follow the rules, still being able to step out. He He, he modelled a kind of rebellion that I think I really absorbed. Mm. Where was home for you growing up, Hannah? It was Mianjin, Brisbane. I grew up in Holland Park and in Cooparoo with my parents, Robin and Tim, and my two brothers, my younger brothers, Michael and Will. And we lived in beautiful kind of tropical Brisbane. And what role did religion play in your family as you were growing up? We were nominal Irish Catholics, I would say. Um, My grandparents were quite devout, my dad's parents. They'd lived out in Dolby. They were farmers. They'd had 10 children um, and they, they had made it very clear to my father and my mother, that they wanted their grandchildren raised as Catholic. And so we were, de- we were given all those initial rites, and I always found them very delicious and ritualistic and fascinating and, and kind of curious about... I was always curious about exploring it a bit further, but realised for most people in those spaces, it was, it was, it was reasonably skin-deep. And, yeah, it was not something that was ever passed as a value system I had to live by. And so very quickly kind of brushed it aside, I suppose. When you look back, do you have memories of um, experiencing something that you might now think of as God or, or holiness? Absolutely. And I think 
I was very sensitive to the possibility of magic. And so for me, there was no difference between magic and this idea of divinity or God. I wanted the supernatural to exist from from the beginning and sought it wherever I went, whether that was the tooth fairy or, or Jesus or angels or Buddha or um, clairvoyance. I just found that if I reached a little bit further in my psyche, there was always something there and I could find it. And so whatever shape it took, I think, I was ready to receive. And I think many, in many ways, it was a product of, of, of loving fiction, loving fantasy, knowing that the, the most liberating experiences I'd personally had were escaping into other worlds. When you were 13, doctors realised that there was something going on in your brain, Anna. What was happening? It was such an interesting thing to discover. I had epilepsy and I had no idea because the form of epilepsy that I had um, was absence seizures or, or petty mal seizures where the brain has has a, has a seizure and the person will go unconscious for a few seconds but they won't fall to the ground necessarily or, or, or tremor. They'll kind of stare off into space like they are a daydreamer, which I already was. And you can have many of these in a day and they can be quite dangerous because there's no aura, there's no warning they're coming and, and you can be in places of vulnerability when they happen. And I didn't at first know what they were. I would be, I was a dancer and I'd be in the middle of a dance at class and I would wake up and just be standing in a room and people, and the music would still be playing and people would be watching me or I'd be starting on the blocks for a race at school about to sprint a hundred meters and the gun would go off and I wouldn't move and I'd wake up and everyone was running and I'd just think, was I daydreaming again? I must just be very vague. How, how could your family or doctors realize that it wasn't just daydreaming or absent-mindedness? Well, the credit is really to my dad. I eventually, um, I was really embarrassed, so I didn't tell anybody. And I eventually mentioned it as a bit of a joke at the dinner table. And my dad, who was a vascular surgeon, just stopped and went very quiet. And very soon after that, I had a whole series of EGs and tests and they and they were kind of immediately conclusive. Um, and so very quickly I was medicated um, and and kind of told, you know, this might not be a big deal in your life or it might be pretty pivotal and you may never be able to do some of the things that you expected as a young woman you might do. You might never be able to drive. You might not be able to have children. It was a very... Um, confusing time because I'd never come face to face with my brain before. That is such big news to get at that age, particularly at 13. What kind of flow on effects were there for you about how you understood yourself and and your place in the world? One of the biggest observations I made at the time was that my mother was always going to be a fierce advocate. And I remember very clearly her sitting in a room with a neurologist and refusing a medication because she knew the side effects would be just too destructive for me as a young person. And they managed to settle on what would be the least in, least invasive. But I noticed very soon, I was, you know, I was a highly academic school captain of the primary school, involved with everything, a, a really um, bright and happy child. And Soon after the diagnosis, and I guess that, that, that kind of coinciding with puberty and this medication, my personality and my mood and my relationship to myself and my body began to spiral drastically. And I essentially developed what would be a raging eating disorder. And I am fascinated by the interactions of that neurology, and I don't know the science myself, but I, I, um, I know that from that point, my experience of life just deeply changed. How bad did things get with that eating disorder when you were a teenager? It, um, it went up and down for quite some time. It really, it really broke the hearts of my parents and they tried everything. 
The school was very supportive and tried a lot as well. And I went up and down and up and down for many years until uh, in year 12, I was hospitalised. And it had just gotten to a point where I was no longer able to choose to be well. I was I had no ability to choose anything but the the kind of addiction. And I, I frame it that way because it reminds me sometimes of, of alcoholism and that I, I can I will always have this in my system and I have learned how to dance with it and how to release myself of it, how to be sober of it, I suppose. But in, in this case, um, it, it took me over entirely. I was not, I had no autonomy with the illness and um, I was so physically unwell that they decided to admit me to hospital to, to, in the middle of year 12 to try and bring my body up to a weight where I could um, basically finally receive some kind of psychological treatment to help me. And what was your experience of that treatment like? You know, hospital is, is not a fun place for most people, certainly not, no. I'm sure, at 17 with, with what was going on for you. What was it like for you inside? I had a unique experience, I think, for the time in that I had a paediatrician, an incredible man called Dr. Prado, and he insisted that I was put in a medical ward, not a psychiatric, um, an adolescent psychiatric ward. And what that meant for the most part is that I was with medical patients and separated from most young people with eating disorders. And that kind of separation meant that they could focus on my refeeding, I suppose, and this idea of trying to bring my, my system to a place where it could learn how to eat again. But I was also surrounded by um, children that were terminally ill, children that were struggling with much deeper, uh, much kind of more maybe permanent issues than I had. And it was a beautiful place of observation. It was very healing in many ways and very triggering and difficult in other ways. It was not a safe place because in many ways I was considered a very selfish person, a person that had decided to be there, who was taking up a bed for somebody else. I, f I heard those comments. I felt them. I was battling great resistance to the experience of being um, made well, even though in so many ways I longed to be normal. I just longed to feel okay. Um, but I made incredible friendships. And one particular friendship was with this beautiful girl called Namali who had 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 a, um, a virus essentially attack her brain and leave her as a quadriplegic. And she was in the process of rehabilitation and we became really close friends. And we were both kind of relearning how to befriend our bodies again, I think. And I left and did not know if I'd ever see her again. And then one night, I remember years later, was out in the valley and I was like on the, you know, the Chinatown car park or something. I was being young and drinking and whatever. And it's just such a beautiful memory because I heard my name being called and I turned and this beautiful woman just ran towards me, <laughs> sprinted. And I could, I barely recognised her because she had recovered and we stood there and both of us were well. And I, I think that moment is kind of seared in my mind as also just an understanding that eating disorders can be treated as something akin to that, that it's not, uh, it's not a character flaw. It's something that requires rehabilitation. How did theatre and acting and performing enter the picture for you? Was that always part of who you were as a no. kid? I think I mean you look back on home videos and you'd you'd be like, mm, that's that that's clearly where you wanted to go. But I had no you know, I thought you needed to be funny, I think. I thought that was that was my real takeaway from like school drama was like if you're the class clown, you'll thrive. And I think it was not until I was I went to university. I, I graduated much to the credit of of incredible people around me, I think, in the hospital that really reminded me of my creativity more than anything else. Um, I, I 
I did leave hospital. I did graduate high school with um, reasonably strong grades and I went and studied psychology. This credit to you too, Anna. I just need to thank you. <laughs> I, I look, it, it, it does feel like in so many ways you get carried in those moments, right? And, um, you know, I had a, an incredible teacher, Dr. Robin Colwell, who came into hospital and just, she was, she was my English professor and she just believed that I could get out of there and write. And my aunt did the same. And I, instead of going into the arts, I was like, no, psychology. I've, I've seen a lot of this. So I'm going to go into psychology. But it wasn't long before, once I was out in the world in a way, I was like, oh, that amateur theatre looks pretty interesting. And once I'd gotten a taste, once I'd realised there were people as weird as me, it was over. Like I was. So was just, that it? Was it the community of people or was totally. it being on the stage? What drew you? It was the community. And I think at the beginning, I was really bad and I didn't care. I was like, I will make a fool of myself if I get to be around these people and feel this way. And I think there's so much to be said about the therapeutic nature of storytelling, not just in our minds and with pen and paper, but allowing something in your body, allowing words to come out of your mouth. Something is solidified when things are said and I I worked through, I think, a lot of catharsis in just going, all right, I'm going to do some of these weird plays. How did your parents respond to this new dream of yours? Oh, they were just, I feel like their eyes rolled so far into the back of their head <laughs> that I saw whites. Like, they were just like, not another one. But they were also kind of like it'll never last. And so when I finally announced I was going to leave my psychology degree and audition for acting school, they were like, well, okay, you know, we'll support you, you know, emotionally if you get into any, if you get into like NIDA or QUT, like these two kind of big acting schools at the time. Um, And I think they were like, you know, winking at each other going like, let's, you know, let's see how this goes. And then the poor things had to just eat their words when I got into QT. (laughs) And then they just were like, all right, we'll just... Okay, she won't get a job after it anyway. So it'll just be the degree. And then, though, you got a job in Underbelly, which at the time was one of the biggest shows on on TV. What role were you playing in in Underbelly? Oh, my poor parents. You know, to their their credit again, they were amazing about it. They were like, this is this far surpasses any expectations we had. I mean, go for it. Um, But they, yes, it was a lot because it was Underbelly. And Underbelly was exactly what it promised itself to be at the time. And that was, you know, a a really gritty crime drama that also had this kind of very decadent and, and intense sexuality to it. And so I was part of the fourth season, which was set in the 1920s, about real kind of 1920s Sydney gangsters and played this young prostitute called Nellie Cameron who was just extraordinary to research and such a joy to play. But it was a very intense role, my first big TV role, straight out. I learned how to act in that. But I also, I think, subliminally learned things about women and bodies and sexuality and how I was supposed to present my gender and my person in order to be acceptable. And then when it aired... I was not prepared at all for the objectification, I suppose, of like what it meant for people to suddenly be looking at my breasts and not listening to what the words I had, the words I had to say. How did the experience of that, of being nude on national TV and the responses that then people feel entitled to give you about your body, how did that play into recovering from an eating disorder? Unfortunately, I think they are, um, it's a perfect storm in many ways, right? And even the shooting of it was because when you're recovering too, your body is is learning how to trust you again, how to eat. Um, your, your weight does fluctuate because you're human, but also because you're in recovery. It, it hasn't, you're still in a kind of reconciling relationship And so to then kind of ask my body to not only be a bit of a sex symbol, but to expose itself 
over a long period of time in front of an audience, I got very insecure and I got very concerned. And I also started to have press where people would be like, so tell us about your weight gain or have, you know, titles of articles that were like curvy actress bears all. And, you know, anybody that has recovered from something like this knows that like the last thing you focus on for somebody in recovery is their body and their weight. And I I guess I wasn't ready. And part of that, the response from me was to close, really. It must hide. Have, it must have been such a confusing or conflicting time too, because on the one hand, you've found this thing that makes you feel alive and yes. joyful and in the world which is performing. But through doing that thing, you're being objectified and and disassociated from your body. It must have been such a confusing time. Where did you start looking to try and make sense? of yourself and life in the midst of all that noise around you? In all honesty, I looked in many places. <laughs> and and in, in, all the, in all the places that um, somebody in their early 20s does look. But I was wrestling with a few things as well, including my sexuality. I was very comfortable with my sexuality. I knew I was queer. Um, I knew that I was free to explore those parts of me. But I'd also, you know been presented through a very male gaze, I suppose, um, and was only getting auditions for roles that really expressed a highly sexualized, feminized, um, heterosexual kind of idea of a woman um, and was very, I suppose, um, struck by the different expectations there were on me. And I felt very political and strongly about it. And so much so, in fact, that I was very, very vocally anti-Christian. And I think that's almost what set me up to fail here because (laughs) I was so like vehemently anti-Christian in my pro-queerness to protect my queerness in a way that when I met, I met a Christian man who was very intelligent and very um, kind of like beautiful and provocative and creative and articulate. And I was so surprised. I I was genuinely like, how is this real? This person who believes in this bigoted ideology is bringing it and presenting himself and it to me as this very sophisticated and elegant and gentle thing. And I was totally struck by him and in the cast, in the midst of all that searching, so much of which had proven quite empty as well, because you you do search in areas and realize very quickly that people are charlatans or people are shallow or ideas are shallow. And the further I seemed to dig in terms of this man, who I had quite a crush on, and this ideology, and by this point I'd moved down to Melbourne and I was very much kind of alone in, um, I had a, a TV job down there and it itself wasn't deeply satisfying. And I was kind of like, there's got to be more. And he made it very clear, you know, this this is the more. And I, in my kind of like defiance and also intrigue, was like, I'm going to read this Bible and decide for myself. This Bible he keeps talking about, what yeah. did you find in there? Was it what you expected? It wasn't. It was, it was, I remember thinking so clearly Whoever these Christians are, they have this book and this Jesus wrong because whoever this Jesus is, is talking straight to me exactly where I am. And I felt this surge of of loyalty and connection and I felt this kind of reverence and humility because I was reading things I had never heard, things like your body is a temple, you are the light of the world and you know, I've now seen versions of those words used as weapons and my experience of them is different. But then when it was just me and this book and a broken body, they were like a balm and they were tools that I used to 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 kind of reintroduce myself to my body. How did that happen in practice, Anna, hearing something like your body is a temple? What did that mean when you looked in the mirror? I felt a sudden separateness to it. And I think that that was really helpful because previous to that, my body felt like an, almost a slave of mine, like this kind of, 
extension, this horse that I had to break in that wasn't obeying me, that wasn't, um, that needed to be punished, that needed to be disciplined, um, that wanted things it shouldn't have and was mine to commandeer and to kind of look at my body almost as a sister or as a friend or as uh, relating to it as an animal that I had no right to dominate was suddenly very, very uh, striking because I felt responsible to apologize to it. And I felt responsible to say, I have treated you badly. And I remember very clearly waking up one morning and just sitting in front of the mirror and saying, I am so sorry. And if you want to eat something, I'll give it to you. And if you want to rest, you get to rest. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So... And at this point in your life where your acting career was taking off but your emotional life was somewhat confused and you've got a crush on this guy who's a Christian and you dip into the Bible and it seems to be offering you a, a different way of being kind to your body and yourself mm. than you'd experienced before, this this man that you met was uh, part of a Pentecostalist, was part of a, a church that was Pentecostalism. I can't even say it. That shows that I was raised a Catholic. <laughs> Explain to me, what is the heart of, of that way of looking at the Bible and, and of God? What, what was at its heart and why did that chime for you back then? Oh, so much about it was so appealing. and And I don't even mean as a kind of as this construct that was sold, but just me as a personality, it was this invitation to living poetry. The idea of of engaging with ritual and engaging with metaphors in my own body, like in my own life, the idea of the inverted kingdom where like the lowest person is the holiest and the person that has the most money or the most power truly in essence has nothing, that was just radical and exciting. But on the other side of that, in the Pentecostal aspect, there was the charismatic elements, which are the supernatural elements. And a lot of what is purported and taught is that God will speak to you. God engages in miraculous acts like healing, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that include speaking in tongues, Prophecy, which is, you know, um, a kind of a structured version of, of, of a psychic reading, basically. Um, the idea of, of miracles happening in people's lives or homes and of miraculous healing of illnesses. All of these things struck me as not only very beautiful, but very possible because the people that had experienced them were so sure and I began to experience kind of some of them too. And for me, that was it. That was that was enough for me to say, I'm willing to give this a real shot. When you look back, are you surprised by how quickly that conversion happened for you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think because I know myself, but I also know how it works. It goes that quickly because it has to, because you have to, if you make very, very uh, abrupt and quick decisions, you're more likely to stick by them in some ways in this in this realm of, of proselytising. Is it like falling in love? Is it that kind of, is yeah. it akin to that sort of experience? It is, it is. And it's, it's like falling in love and finding your like true identity all in one. It feels like you got a you got the owl in the mail from Hogwarts. <laughs> That's what it feels like. And there was resistance. And I do like I will say I, I was I wasn't non-critical. I went in thinking I would never compromise on things that a year later I definitely did. What sort I, of things? Things like my queerness. Like I went in saying I will never compromise on that. I know what I believe. I know what's right. I know I understand where who I am and, and why it's good. And 
within a year, I had repented of it. I had engaged in um, queer conversion therapy and I had renounced it and agreed to to not engage with my queerness ever again and to marry. I hadn't, I wasn't engaged, but I had made a decision that I would honour God by by marrying a man. And at that point in time, I was now dating this pastor. And, um, and what was happening in that relationship? Well, we had eventually kind of found our way to dating. I had made it very clear that I wanted to. And he was like, you know, after you've done some of this um, discipleship work and essentially we have cut some of these demons off of you, um, literally, because exorcism is a major part of it too. But it's framed so differently. If you if you were just play, if you were just handed that as the initial contract, you'd laugh. But because it's brought about in this subtle and slow way, you kind of go, you know, actually that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I suppose I do have that trauma that I could resolve by allowing Jesus to come in and kind of relieve it. Um, Eventually, we, he and I dated, and he was a worship pastor. His parents ran the church. His family were very, very involved, and it was small, but it was also large enough that it was well-known by the community. It, it was clearly not um, a an obvious cult, and our relationship was a celibate one where um, we agreed that we wouldn't have sex until we were married. But this idea of this marriage was seemed very distant and I realized as time went on in our relationship and we constructed this strange celibate intimacy that I was learning for the first time. Um, meanwhile, I'm naked on national television um, that something wasn't quite right between us. And, and how did the details of that unfurl? Initially began with a conversation between us. He knew that I was queer, but he sat me down one night sobbing and just said, I, I need to tell you that I am, you know, I am same-sex attracted, which is the framing that's usually, the words that are usually used in, in these um, more Pentecostal contexts is saying someone's same-sex attracted or SSA. And I said, well, that's, I'm the same. Like we, we we can have this relationship where we're with one another, but we understand our queerness and we've chosen this. So Bob's your uncle. Like I don't <laughs> see the problem. Like I'm a bit confused. Like is this, this seems to be a big revelation for you. And he had a lot of, sh- a lot of shame. He'd grown up um, with extremely conservative values and I think it, he had tried very, very hard to open himself to a, a version of healing, of conversion therapy, and he was afraid it wouldn't work. At least that was the impression I got at that time. And um, a few months later, something felt distinctly strange. And I remember sitting him down in a car one evening and saying, is there anything you are not telling me? And it turned out that he had been waiting until I asked. And he just crumbled. It was like this weight lifted off of him. And he just sat there and cried and said, actually, yes, Actually, um, I have been secretly going to beats, meeting up anonymously with men and having sex pretty much for the last few months. I'm not able to stop it when I want to. They weren't relationships. It was just, I suppose, casual sex, but it felt to him, I think, like an addiction. And what would happen is that he would engage with it and then he'd run to his parents or other elders in the church, confess it, so, um, so they all knew. The rest of the church, the whole church, knew that, the whole church you. leadership knew, and they didn't tell me because they really wanted us to get married, and thought that that would heal him. And so when I did find out, they actually sat me down and said, "You need to forgive him. This is not cheating; it's sin. And if you speak about it, it's gossip, and that is sin." So we believe God wants you to get married, and we believe that you should really just forgive him and try. And I tried. You didn't consider leaving the church at that point? I think I had given up so much at this stage that I needed God to be real, even if the integrity of the people wasn't. And when our relationship did eventually end, because unfortunately for him, he he just, he couldn't stop those behaviours. And, and and I think it's a little different to the idea of he realised that he was queer and just couldn't be in love with me. It was one of those more compulsive behaviours, I think, where he was like, I just, this is where I'm at and it won't stop. 
And so we decided to end the relationship. And instead of removing myself from the church as a whole, I realized somebody intervened with me at one point there and said some of the behaviors and things happening are veering into very dangerous territory and I think you should leave the church. And so I went to LA and I left, but I needed God more than ever. And so I lent even further into that value system, in all honesty, and decided to become more radical than I ever had been. Fairly quickly after that, you met someone who you did marry. Yes. How speedy was the decision to to marry for the two of you? So quick. And I think so much of that was me needing and wanting it to be God and God's will. And that had been encouraged, I suppose, in the communities I've been part of. It was definitely on me in that I... I just wanted a safety in the sense of I thought if somebody is willing to marry me and they believe the same things that I do, what they're offering me is more than anything a soaring, passionate love has before this. And um, the man that I was dating proposed to me 12 weeks after we started dating, not out of passion, He felt the Holy Spirit had told him to, even though we were having troubles already. And we wanted to both obey God. And so even though we both knew that we were probably not very well matched, we thought God has a plan for us that is that we aren't as aware of. And once we marry, we'll see why. And so against um, my family's wishes and against the advice of a lot of people, but with the very overt blessing of the pastors we had at the time who who wanted us to get married, um, we got married six months later. When you look back at, at yourself at that point and listen closely, was there any voice inside of you saying, not sure? Yes, yes. But part of me too needed a level of autonomy that maybe I'd been fighting for for a long time. And in my way, it was my own weird rebellion where the more people said to me, you don't know what you're doing, the more I almost dug in my heels and said, maybe, but it's my choice to make. And it's nobody's else's fault in that I think we I have learned so much from that decision and I have two beautiful children from that decision and I think part of me knew something was on the other side but it's also that realization that before it even began I think I knew that it would end. Tell me a little about that experience of of pregnancy and birth and and motherhood because it's an experience of embodiment like no other. Yeah. How did it expand your sense of of your body, I guess, and of of God by going through the experience of giving birth and and being a mum? All of a sudden, I think I was given language for the divinity of the female body, where before that I had been given purity culture. I was told that the female body was kind of evil, that my sexuality was evil and broken, that I couldn't trust what my body wanted or needed in many ways, even though I had found my own way to knowing that it was good. To become pregnant and grow a child, to experience birth, my first birth was traumatic and premature, but in the midst of that was just transcendent. It was this experience of looking at both my body, its growth, the way that it held me and supported me after everything I'd done to portray it, just the way it it embraced giving life that was so ready. It just, it was like, give me an inch and I'll take a mile. I cannot wait to be this source of creativity. I was in awe of it. And I think it shifted for me this idea of where my feminism could sit in Christianity because the way that I was treated as a woman changed when I got married. The way that I understood my femininity and my agency changed. It was different being a married Christian woman to being a single Christian woman. 
and I didn't like it. And you didn't like it. I didn't like. Did it not give you more power or legitimacy? Motherhood in that did. Community. Motherhood. Motherhood. You get legitimacy in a social standing when you get married, but you also become below someone in particular. You're no longer yours. You become your husband's. You become somebody that is intended to be a mother and a helper, not a leader in your own right. And even if churches don't actively subscribe to that thinking, it's in the Bible and they have embodied it. And I felt so fierce and alive when I became a mother that all of a sudden this anger began to grow towards the general idea, not not, not just my partner who, who was genuinely trying. I just sat in this space of going, I've just had daughters. Am I going to let them inherit this? Absolutely not. And at that point in your life, Anna, as well as this new life that you were bringing forth and, and nurturing, there was death in your family and, and in the world that you were in. What was happening to your dad and your beloved uncle, Andrew? I'd experienced death before in, in, in distant ways, I suppose. I'd never experienced it firsthand. I'd almost lost my first child when she was born and spent a lot of time in the hospital around that time. And it, was, it reminded me a lot of my time when I was a young person in hospital, strangely. You know, this teenager and this tiny baby being fed through a nasogastric tube and told, well, when she learns to eat, then she can go home. But I did not understand terminal illness. And I, even when Andrew was diagnosed and died and my aunt Marg was diagnosed and died, that was all in quick succession. There was a proximity, but there was also this sense of it touches people I love, but it will never touch me. And it was probably about six weeks after my second daughter was born that um, I got a call from my youngest brother who was tasked with the job of telling me that my dad had been diagnosed that day with the same cancer that my uncle had died from, pancreatic, that it was stage four, it was inoperable, it was, it was already over before it began. And I was um, a few hours away and I, I offered to kind of drive to them straight away and they said, no, no, come the next day. And I remember... I'd seen Dad the week before and then I saw him the following week. I saw him that, that next day and I saw two different people. There's a before and there's an after. And I knew immediately when I beheld him that the faith that I had constructed, I think, up until that point, a faith that had actively included praying for healing for people that were terminally unwell or had sicknesses or cancer or anything like that, believing that God was a healing God, that that was like the most beautiful picture of his character. I looked at my dad and, and I said to myself, you will never dishonor your father by praying for him to be healed. This is the, the, the way you will love him is by honoring his suffering and being with him through his suffering. That is, that is the truest thing I know about any spirituality in this moment. And I was actually kind of surprised that when it came down to it, this version of my faith evaporated. How did your church community and, and your husband respond to this fierce determination you had to be with your father as he was and the reality of, of his death rather than praying for some miracle? I think in that case, they let me be. It didn't impact them. What is so interesting to me is that that was not an offensive position to take. You find in other situations that people will be in their own lives. They'll go one way or the other. They will defiantly believe for healing or defiantly ask for it or resurrection. They'll ask for resurrection. Because it was my father, I think there was a degree of going, you process this how you process it, but don't forget that if he doesn't become a Christian before he dies, he's going to hell. And I think that was another aspect that I had to immediately release because I knew him and I knew God and I knew that those two things were not going to be separated if they were both true. What is interesting to me is that when he did die, 
I had some of the most spiritual experiences I have ever had, the most profound interactions with whatever is there on the other side. And they were separate to a heightened experience of grief. They were euphoric. And then to embody that and the audacity I think that gifted me and then leave my marriage two weeks after his death, what's fascinating to me is that even if the church could not, even if they didn't have much to say about the lack of healing, they had a lot to say about me leaving my marriage. And it's a fascinating kind of hill to die on, I think, that that is almost the most important value of control, that no matter what your experience of a marriage is, no matter what you should stay. Did your disengagement from that way of looking at the world and the assumptions it has about the right thing for, for you to do, did it happen... I don't know, in one moment, Anna, or was there, like, can you trace the layers of you being able to move your mind and heart away from that framework, which was your whole world at that point? I think a lot can be credited to the state of the world because we were seeing aspects of the church that we had not seen before in the midst of COVID conspiracies and Trump and all of this stuff, and we'd also been in lockdowns where instead of going every single week to be with these people, we were all separated and actually able to use our minds. And I don't think, I don't mean to dismiss it because I think there's so much beauty and power in Christianity and in the church. But I know for myself that the more I kind of grew these weeds back of myself, or things that were called weeds, I suppose, the more I saw a garden, I, I saw this thing I loved and where I had previously pulled everything out, I actually just went, I think I want her. I think I like her and I think I want my daughters to become like her. And when you lose a parent or someone close to you and you see somebody's life presented before you in a eulogy or you see the number of people that come and say to you, this person changed my life, I just realised I wanted a different legacy. Well, in the midst of the succession of losses of your father, your marriage, your church community, what did you do? Where did you turn to try and bring back this wholeness, the full garden? (laughs) It was, I have to admit, you know, it was really difficult in the sense that at first I kind of I just ran into the arms of of acting and, and I did make lots of things, but a lot of it was not engaging with, I suppose, the deeper grief. I was like, I'll just keep super busy. I was deeply focused on my kids. And it got to a certain point in the process of both the grief and the separation where I realised that no matter what my intentions were, no matter how hard I tried to keep my people safe, or no matter how hard I tried to tell the truth, I would not necessarily be believed. There would not necessarily be justice. And terrible, terrible things could still happen. And I needed to do something with that because it was destroying me. And I was lost. And I kind of got to this point where I thought, you might not survive this if you don't sit down and just try and write. And that is kind of what I did with Immaculate. What a lead into writing a book. <laughs> well, it happened under uh, the pressure of the deadline of this prize that you've won, the Vogel. So it was compressed, though obviously yeah. drawing on years, maybe a lifetime of, of reflection and experience. How did it feel when it was done? Not when you won the prize, but just when it was done and finished. I felt alive again. I, I, I wrote it very quickly. I realised that it was the final year I could enter and I had wanted to enter since I was a child, not to win it, but, but because Andrew had. I knew it existed. I knew, I weirdly knew it was a pathway and I, it always sat there as a thing where I was like, you know, before I'm 35, you know, I, I know I want one day, I want to write a novel, I want to write a novel. And I had written this whole time in other forms and I just 
had this terrible moment of realising you have seven weeks and then you do not have another opportunity to do this. So do you do it foolishly in the middle of grieving and parenting and a day job or do you just let that go, you know, and move on? And I told a couple of people thinking that they would say I was stupid and I knew they knew me well enough to tell me the truth and they both said, do it. And I wrote so quickly, I don't even know what I wrote, but it's like I had aspects of the story there and then the characters kind of led me through my own grief. I'm so glad for you and for all your readers that you did that. Thank you. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations (laughs) today. Thank you so much. Anna McGann was my guest today and Anna's first novel, Immaculate, has won this year's Vogel Prize. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Conversations listeners, Miyuki Okiranta here, host of the Earshot podcast. And if you love compelling and candid first-person stories, then let me tell you about episode one of our new season of stories all about remembering and forgetting. Memory can be a trickster, a soother, a tormentor. But what would it be like to have no memories at all, to forget who you are? I had no recollections, I had no fears. The Australian band Rocket Science, fronted by singer-songwriter Roman Tucker, was labelled the next big thing. But everything changed when Roman had a serious accident and lost his memory. Do you know who I am? I guessed. I said, my auntie? And she said, no, I'm your mother. Check out the Earshot podcast to hear Roman's story about trying to remember himself to rebuild his identity. Find us on the ABC Listen app.